Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You know, whenever I find a journalist who has done deep research into a topic, I'm grateful. I'm grateful because I get a deeper interpretation of what I thought I knew. I'm grateful for newly discovered facts that had been missing in earlier reporting by other reporters. I don't like opinions propped up by generalizations that are already sitting on the lips of most of the readers or hearers. You know, many journalists, especially older journalists, are aware that we have a problem. Uh, They know that they've been prevented, in many cases, from going very deep. They say, look, what can I do? I've got a two-minute package here. Uh, on uh, on TV news, uh, I can only do you know fifteen hundred words uh, in my paper, and you know real investigative reporting takes lots of time, lots of money, and you've got to have a place where you can di- exhibit it. But there are other problems uh, in modern journalism. Problems like the loss of the ideal of objectivity. Reporters know that there's no perfect objectivity. Uh, Christians know only God is perfectly objective. But we shouldn't conclude from that that striving for the ideal of objectivity is a futile effort. We shouldn't just settle for generalizations in which, you know, we may not have much evidence, but, you know, this is already part of the public so-called common knowledge, so we can just repeat it, and nobody will challenge us. Another problem is that journalists, at least since Watergate, uh, you know, Woodward and Bernstein's reporting, have wanted to change the world rather than report it. So they went into journalism. There was a, widely thought, there was a burst of new interest in journalism after Watergate by those who were imagining they could change the world by uncovering corruption. What they don't get is that trying to change the world was not how Woodward and Bernstein ended up changing the world. I had a chance to interview Carl Bernstein when he came through Detroit in the mid-1990s. He was down to earth, very unacademic, and of course you can't interview Carl Bernstein without talking about Watergate. The lesson he had for young journalists, he said, was to stress the tedious, unglamorous, patient work of developing sources, confirming statements, submitting one's work to rigorous editorial standards. He and Woodward changed the world, not because they were trying. They changed the world because they spent nearly two years trying to confirm details of a story that only gradually emerged. The fact that they didn't like Nixon might have motivated them at some point, but so did their hunger for recognition the desire for a Pulitzer, as well as a raise in salary or a higher position at the Washington Post. Woodward was, in fact, promoted to assistant managing editor at the Post, and sadly seems to have forgotten his own Watergate lesson when he was developing Janet Cook. She was a talented young reporter who, in September 28th of 1980, published the famous story, Jimmy's World. It was about an eight-year-old heroin addict. And she described the needle marks freckling the baby smooth skin of his thin brown arms. End quote. The Washington Post immediately became the empathy enterprise. The story brought tears to the eyes of millions, including Washington, D.C. Mayor Marion Barry, no stranger to drug abuse himself. Barry confirmed the story, saying that little Jimmy was now in custody and undergoing treatment. And the Washington Post nominated Cook for a Pulitzer Prize, which she won. And she was proud. She had raised the consciousness of America regarding the problems of drug abuse among minors. There were those at the Post who were suspicious of the story's over-reliance on anonymous sources. The implausibility of an eight-year-old heroin addict. Lack of confirmation in Cook's notes. Assistant Managing Editor Bob Woodward forgot the lessons of reporter Bob Woodward and defended the piece. 
Ironically, Ben Bradley stood behind him. They didn't hold Cook to the standards that had governed their Watergate reporting. As it turned out, the story was a hoax. Janet Cook had manufactured little Jimmy out of her own imagination. Marion Barry actually lied. It was a great piece of fiction in the service of changing the world. It would have been a great novel. Cook might have gotten a Nobel Prize for literature, but it wasn't reporting. And she returned her Pulitzer Prize. Bradley and Woodward ate crow. Bradley went into retirement, in fact. The weakness of popular journalism continues because we, the public, don't demand better. The line between opinion and reporting has now become so blurred that the public often seems to have forgotten that the two are not one. Pundits can offer opinions which often contain falsehoods, but they won't likely be challenged because those falsehoods are embedded in a body of opinion that pleases their bosses and their primary audience. Former president of CNN, Jeff Zucker, once complained that CNN, just back in 19, oh, it was 2006, I think, complained that CNN was dominated by talking heads that were little more than political advisors. And yet, by the time of the Trump presidency, he made it clear that CNN journalists were to treat the Trump presidency like a plane crash. Their job was to report on the grieving, the dead, the wounded, the pilot error, the corporate irresponsibility. This reporting to please one's boss or to stroke one's key market has actually been with us a long time. Ben Bradley, in his early days with The Post, was a close friend of Jack and Jackie Kennedy. They vacationed together. Uh, in his memoir, he admits he crossed the line that must exist between a reporter and those on whom he reports. But this symbiotic, often self-serving relationship between the press and the powerful is not new. In the years after World War II, a clique of affluent, well-educated, connected government officials, journalists, activists, politicians that now has the, the name the Georgetown set, helped steer American strategy from the Marshall Plan through McCarthyism, Watergate, all to the end game of Vietnam. The Georgetown set included Phil and Kay Graham, husband and wife publishers of The Post, Joe and Stuart Alsop, odd couple brothers who are among the country's premier political pundits, Frank Wisner, a driven, manic-depressive lawyer in charge of CIA covert operations. On occasion, Jack and Jackie Kennedy, Henry Kissinger in later years, and a host of other diplomats, spies, and scholars responsible for crafting America's response to the Soviet Union from Truman to Reagan. This was a smaller, cozier Washington than we have today. It was a time when presidents made foreign policy in consultation with reporters and professors over martinis and hors d'oeuvres and columnists and reporters like Joe and Stuart Alsop, Walter Lippmann, Scotty Reston, might even promote those policies in the next day's newspapers. All of this incestuous uh, gabbing between pundits and politicians leads to intellectual laziness. CNN has been notorious for its lack of critical thinking. Uh, Jake Tapper is about the only one over there who ever says anything unpredictable. And we saw a startling example of this intellectual laziness recently with Don Lemon. Lemon admits he owes his career to Jeff Zucker. And to show how only, uh, intellectually unprepared a host can become when he's only paid to repeat the generalities expected, let's look at an instance. Is after the death of Queen Elizabeth, Lemon was interviewing Hillary Fordwich, who reports on the royals for CBS. He asks a question of her that Fordwich generally agrees 
excuse me, he asks a question assuming that Ford, which agrees with him, that the royal family probably owes people of color something for colonialism, slavery, and the greed of 19th century uh, British Empire. Fordwich's response shows how utterly clueless was Don Lemon. He was without a follow-up question, and I'll tell you a little bit more later. Take a listen to this exchange. Well, this is coming when, you know, there's all of this wealth, and you hear about it, comes as England is facing rising costs of living, a living crisis, austerity budget cuts, and so on. And then you have those who are asking uh, for reparations for colonialism and they're wondering you know 100 billion dollars 24 billion dollars here and there 500 million there some people want to be paid back and uh, and members of the public are wondering why are we suffering when you are you know you have all of this vast wealth those are legitimate concerns well, I think you're right about reparations in terms of if people want it, though, what they need to do is you always need to go back to the beginning of a supply chain. Where was the beginning of the supply chain? That was in Africa. And when across the entire world, when slavery was taking place, which was the first nation in the world that abolished sla- uh, slavery? The first nation in the world to abolish it. It was started by William Wilberforce, was the British. In, in Great Britain, they abolished slavery. 2000... Naval men died on the high seas trying to stop slavery. Why? Because the African kings were rounding up their own people. They had them on cages waiting in the beaches. No one was running into Africa to get them. And I think you're totally right. If reparations need to be paid, we need to go right back to the beginning of that supply chain and say who was rounding up their own people and having them handcuffed in cages. Absolutely. That's where they should start. And maybe, I don't know, the descendants of those families where they died in the high seas trying to stop the slavery, that those families should receive something too, I think, at the same time. It's an interesting discussion, Hillary. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll continue to, to discuss in the future. Now, they showed, he was without follow-up question. He had assumed that uh, she was basically on the same page, that the greed of the British Empire required that reparations be made. But listen, who deserves them? How much should be given? How would you administer such a program that would be rich in possibilities for graft and corruption? Would one have to show a genealogy of one's parent, grandparent, great-grandparents all the way back and to say, I deserve reparations? What about the person of color who's now a Harvard grad making half a million a year? What about those families that were left bereft and desolate because the U.S. Civil War claimed the lives of their young brothers and fathers? What, are they, what should they be paid? And who should pay? What calculus, moral or financial, could we devise that could properly calibrate who's knows, who owes what to whom? You know, I should mention here, too, that William Wilberforce uh, had played an important role in this, probably the key role in the abolition of the, the slave trade in the British Empire. He uh, had a, a magnificent conversion to Christ during the Wesleyan revivals. And he wrote that God had called him to two great things in his life, the abolition of slavery and the reformation of manners. That's a phrase we don't use much today, but it meant basically a a return to virtue, uh, abolition of cruel sport, uh, uh, drunkenness, uh, get rid of prostitution, that kind of thing. I think it's important for those who report and depine to make sure that the readers and listeners and viewers know what presuppositions, what prejudices, what commitments govern their view of the world? Nobody can be perfectly objective, but we can be fair in how we handle evidence and respect those with whom we disagree. 
The fact that I operate openly as a Catholic media personality doesn't give me permission to suppress some facts and exaggerate others to make the church or its personnel look good or look better than the facts weren't. It doesn't give me permission to lie in the cause of Christ or in the cause of the unborn. It means that because, for me, because I am self-consciously and publicly committed to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, I have to be prepared to answer to a truth-teller greater than any earthly boss or audience. But I do think journalists need to tell us where they're coming from. And we know better than to think that they are perfectly objective.